I want to uh, ask you to turn once again in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 verses 20 uh, through 37 to the end of the chapter today. This week I, uh, I listened to a speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast on C-SPAN. C-SPAN was really exciting this week. I, I, I will only say that a few times in my life. This week, C-SPAN was full of excitement. And uh, anyway, I was listening to this speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, and he, uh, I think somewhat surprisingly, spoke openly and with clarity about the second coming of Christ. Um, and when Jesus comes back to bring justice and judgment to the nations of this world and bring salvation to his people. And he went on to say that as Christians, we live in light of that reality, in light of the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I say that because I think that is a lesson that Jesus is teaching us here in this text. He wants us to understand that as disciples, knowing who is coming and what's coming determines how we think and live right now. And uh, that's a a theme we'll be reflecting upon this morning. It's our custom here at Trinity before we read God's word to ask for his help and understanding, understanding it and taking it to heart. So let's pray together before we read. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word this morning, we pray that we would be aware that you are speaking to us. We thank you that your word is living and active, it's sharp and penetrating, it's useful and profitable. And we thank you that just as your word proved to be utterly trustworthy about the first coming of Christ and his, in his birth and his life and death and resurrection, so your word is utterly trustworthy regarding his second coming. So give us understanding today. Help us understand the implications of these truths for our our own lives and bless us with the ministry of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. Let's hear God's word together. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to, his, uh, to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, this passage kicks off with a question from the Pharisees about the presence of the kingdom. And Jesus answers or responds to the Pharisees' question, and then he turns to his disciples, as he so often did for a little teaching seminar, and he speaks to his disciples about the coming of the kingdom. And while he speaks about the coming of the kingdom, he gives his disciples two warnings. Don't be deceived and don't be unprepared. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. Uh, The presence of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. And as we consider the coming of the kingdom, we need to hear Jesus' two warnings here. Don't be duped. Don't be deceived. And don't be unprepared. So let's begin with the first uh, section here. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm still in recovery vocally. Um, The Pharisees, they they come to Jesus asking him this question uh, about the presence of the kingdom. When is the kingdom coming? And they ask this question, I think, because they have certain preconceptions of what it will be like when the kingdom comes. Uh, You know, when when the kingdom of God comes in their minds, it will result in radical political and social change. Perhaps the overthrowing of Roman tyranny, set free from the shackles of the Roman Empire. Uh, A king reestablished on the the throne in Jerusalem. You know, whatever they had in mind, because these were their preconceptions, however they concluded that the kingdom of God has not yet come. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is coming in ways that are not observable with the naked eye. 
that his kingdom will not be identified in the same ways that the kingdoms of this world are identified. And, and in fact, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Jesus says. Not in you, as some translations have it, because God's kingdom rule was certainly not in the hearts of the Pharisees. <clears throat> but nonetheless, the kingdom of God was in their midst. It was a present reality. The kingdom had come because the king had come. You know, Jesus Christ came into the world as God's king. And when he began his public ministry, a constant theme he declared over and over and over again is that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has arrived. And he has, he's gone on to, to show the, the power of his kingdom in driving back the forces of darkness, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, forgiving, repenting, and believing sinners. He has gone around throughout his public ministry displaying the powers of the kingdom of God and the reality that in him the kingdom of God had come. But the Pharisees, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it at all. The, the king uh, was standing right in front of them. The kingdom was in their midst. They couldn't recognize the king and they didn't see the kingdom at all. How can that be, you ask? Well, think of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You know that story? When Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night. And it, at least he's... <coughs> He appears to be prepared to say something that many of his fellow Pharisees were not prepared to say. He comes to Jesus and he, and he says, Jesus, we, we understand that you are, you are sent from God because no one could do the remarkable things that you are doing unless God sent him. And so Nicodemus, at least at some level, understood that Jesus was sent from God. And then Jesus, I think as a sort of spiritual test, test says to Nicodemus, <coughs> Nicodemus, unless, unless you are born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God. And you remember Nicodemus' response? He, he's, I met, he's kind of scratching his head. What? Jesus, what do you mean by that? Does that mean that I need to enter into the womb of my mother and be born all over again? And I don't think you'd blame Jesus for at that point putting his hand on his forehead and saying, well, you, will you never get it. Because in that same passage, you have Nicodemus identified as one of the great teachers of Israel. For all of his learning, for all of his study, for all of his knowledge of the scriptures, he still didn't get it. He couldn't see, and Jesus is saying he couldn't see because he was spiritually blind and spiritually dead. Now I think something wonderful happens in Nicodemus' life, and you've got to read the rest of the Gospel of John to discover that. But what Jesus said to Nicodemus on this occasion 
He's saying to the Pharisees here in Luke chapter 17, I think, that they are actually spiritually blind and spiritually dead. And they don't realize that every time they open their mouths to talk to Jesus, they are actually revealing how spiritually blind they are. And that's, you know, that's always true, friends. Every time we speak about Jesus or about the Bible, about the gospel, about the church, about kingdom life, what comes out of our mouths, whether, whether we like it or not, is a revelation of our spiritual condition. And so Jesus says that in this present age, his kingdom is not observed with displays of worldly power. His kingdom is present where, where men and women and boys and girls are, are, are reconciled to God and, and brought gladly under the reign of Christ and restored to what God intends us to be, image bearers. But now Jesus Jesus turns to his disciples for for a little teaching seminar. And so for the rest of this passage, he turns from talking about the presence of the kingdom to the coming of the kingdom. That's interesting, isn't it? The kingdom is in the midst of you and the kingdom is yet to come. There is this already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we await the full reality and revelation of the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches his disciples at least two important lessons. Two warnings really to those who await the coming of the kingdom. And so let's think about these two. And the first one as I said earlier is don't don't be deceived. Don't be duped. He tells them in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Jesus is alluding, I think, to to Daniel chapter 7, which describes the Son of Man about Jesus approaching the Ancient of Days, his heavenly Father, to, to receive the consummated kingdom. The kingdom where God will receive the, the glory and honor and service of the nations, which is his due. And Jesus is saying here, I think, that there are going to be times when disciples will, in in this present age, long to see that time, long to see one of those days. We We can understand that, can't we, in the midst of this fallen, twisted, broken, unjust world? Aren't there times when... You find yourself crying out, Lord, Lord Jesus, I, I long for this world to just be, to be wrapped up and to see, to catch a glimpse of the full reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over the nations. And because we want that, I think Jesus warns his disciples about being tricked by people who say, oh, you know, you, you want to know when the king is coming. I can, I can actually tell you. I've, I've got the hermeneutical key that unlocks the secret message of the Bible that tells you the precise time, location, and, and how of Jesus' return. I can, I can tell you if you'd, if you'd like to know. I think you've, you've heard these sorts of folks. They, 
There, uh, there's at least a couple of them every generation. Some of you might remember um, uh, a recent example with Harold Camping, who, you know, he confidently predicted the end of the world first on September 6th, 1994. And when his initial prediction, of course, came to nothing, he changed his prediction to a far more obvious and certain date, October 21st, 2011. He was really saying, wasn't he? Look here, look, look there. He was looking for signs he thought he could interpret with his understanding of the Bible, and it led him to completely wrong conclusions. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, don't be taken in by that kind of foolishness. Don't follow that. He knows how his disciples will feel. They will long for the whole creation <coughs> to be renewed and for evil to be banished, for the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we might be tempted to believe any religious person who comes along and says, I can tell you when he's coming and how he's coming. Don't follow that, Jesus says, stay away from that. Don't be duped. But then secondly, don't be unprepared. That's the second warning Jesus gives his disciples, and he spends much more time on this. Don't be unprepared when I return. And one of the reasons that people could be caught unprepared is because things will be going on just as they've always gone on. It will be business as usual. You know, they hear false teachers, they're saying, look at these signs, look here and look there. But Jesus says, actually, when I return in majesty and power, it will be same old, same old, same old. You know, his return will be, how does Jesus describe it? It will be like lightning, lighting up the sky from one end to another. By some supernatural means, the entire earth will know that the Son of Man is returning. But before his arrival, it will be just like another day in the world. And Jesus backs that up with two Old Testament illustrations, which we'll look at in just a moment. But, but before Jesus goes on to those illustrations, he, he, he kind of inserts here that there's something you need to remember, dear disciples, in verse 25. Speaking about himself, he says, first, I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Understand the order, beloved. Because before my second coming can occur, I must accomplish what I have been sent to do in my first coming. In order for me to come in glory, I must first suffer, be rejected, and die upon a cross. And so Jesus is reminding them of what he's going to Jerusalem to do. And it has as its ultimate end the glory of the Father and the consummation of his kingdom. But back to this idea of, of being prepared and, and, and what the days will be like prior to the return of Christ. And Jesus gives us these two Old Testament illustrations to say his second coming will be as, as in the days of Noah. 
first of all, when people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, right? People were doing what people do in the days of Noah. And when his family went into the ark and judgment came unexpectedly and destroyed them all. See, the final coming of the kingdom will be unexpected by many people. We learn that. We're meant to learn that from the story of Noah in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Business as usual. No no concern for the future. No thought about what's coming. They weren't giving any serious consideration to the fact that this man named Noah was building this massive boat in the middle of a dry area. They weren't giving any consideration to the fact that this preacher of righteousness was warning them about the judgment to come. Instead, people went about their lives as usual until the day when the flood came and carried them away. And then Jesus gives this second illustration First of the days of Noah, then the days of Lot, when he lived in Sodom in verses 28 and 29. And you know, Sodom was a, a corrupt community, living life as usual. Here's the description, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Filling their stomachs, drinking to their heart's delight, engaging in commerce, planting new fields, starting new building projects, living life as normal without thinking at all about what was yet to come. Now, of course, we know the city was, the city was full of injustice and inhospitality and immorality. Peter writes about um, the days of Lot in 2 Peter chapter 2 and tells us that Lot was, was deeply vexed, deeply disturbed by the unrighteousness and the immorality uh, occurring around him. And so the problem, though, this is, I think, the emphasis of this passage. The problem in both the days of Noah and the days of Lot isn't that they were doing normal human things like eating and drinking and planting and building The problem is they failed to heed the warnings and prepare for what was to come. They were living life as if this life was the only life there was. And so they weren't prepared on the day of the coming of the Lord. And (coughs) Jesus is saying, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man when he returns in majesty and glory, many will be unprepared. But we also learn from these two examples in the Old Testament, don't we, that that the coming of Christ will result in the deliverance of his people. Noah and and his family were kept safe in the ark. Lot and some of his family members were were led out of the city and, and the wicked were taken away in, in judgment. So what will this deliverance look like on the day of the, the Son of Man? I think Jesus talks about that in verses 34 and 35. Take a look at those verses with me, would you? He says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, 
One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So here are two, you know, ordinary activities. One at night, one likely in the early morning. Two in bed and two women grinding grain likely for uh, making bread that day. In each case, one is taken and the other left. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, you know how this passage is sometimes taken by some of our brothers and sisters, but Jesus, Jesus is not teaching here a secret rapture of believers. He's talking about a public separation. Uh, not, not airplanes falling out of the sky because pilots have been you know, zapped out of the cockpit. This is, this is when Jesus returns to bring judgment and salvation. One will be taken the other left. And he's building upon these two Old Testament illustrations. So just ask the question, who was it in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot that was taken away? It was the wicked who were taken away in judgment. And it was the the believers who were, you know, left behind. And that means the, the coming of the kingdom is... Salvation for believers and judgment for unbelievers. The very day Noah and his family went into the ark, the floodwaters began. The very day that Lot and his family were were led out of the city, fire and sulfur rained down upon the city of Sodom. And so salvation and judgment occurred simultaneously And so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Listen to some things Paul and Peter say about this. Paul first in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, You are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Uh, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3. When, when he's addressing the issue of people are saying, what of his coming? What about Jesus' return? He hasn't kept his word that he will come again. And what does Peter do? He says, think about the flood. The flood came according to the word of God. And even so, by the same word, things are being kept until the destruction of the ungodly. Jesus and Paul and Peter are all saying it will be a terrible day of reckoning for those who think they are not accountable to be held to account. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples to say to them, be ready, don't be unprepared. And and he gives to them this consummate warning in in verse 32. I think the second shortest verse in the Bible, though Jesus didn't know he was giving the second shortest verse in the Bible at that time. But verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why does Jesus need to say that to his disciples? Why is that a needed warning 
for committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think maybe part of the answer is that because she was part of a believing family. Think about it. She was was the wife of what the New Testament calls righteous lot. She was a relative of Abraham, the man of faith. And I think Jesus is at least saying that you can be married to a righteous spouse and related to godly family members and still and still be lost. You see it all came out. In the judgment. It all came out in the, the day of reckoning. This is, this is a sobering reality. It looks as though this family was united together in faith. But then when push comes to shove. And they're fleeing from the the city coming under the judgment of a holy God who is giving Sodom its just desserts, Mrs. Lot's heart was back in Sodom. And when God himself had said, don't turn back, she turned back and perished forever. What What a serious word. Dear friends, this is from Jesus. Jesus is saying, my dear, dear disciples, don't be deceived and please don't be unprepared for the coming of my kingdom. When the the night sky lights up and I am revealed, (coughs) my, my triumph and glory are made visible to the whole earth. It's crisis time. And in that hour, there will not be time for you to have a change of heart. You see, you can be very near to someone who is ready for Christ to return. You can be sleeping in the same bed. You can have close close friends and close relatives who are ready for Christ's return and not at all be ready yourself for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, it's made clear again and again and again in the Bible that Jesus is coming again in salvation and in judgment. And he urges us to live as people who are ready for that day. As people who have given up on trying to find life in this life. Instead, who have died and found new life in Christ. You see what Jesus is saying? Seek Well, what what does he say? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses it will keep it. (laughs) So seek to preserve your life in the here and now with the stuff and the resources available to you in this world and perish forever. Or die to this world, die to self, Find new life in Jesus Christ and live forever. Those are the options Jesus is setting before his disciples. What Jesus, you see, what Jesus has done in the past, what he's doing right now, and what he will do one day in the future determines how disciples think and live in the here and now. But then at the end of this passage, the disciples, they ask their own question. They ask him where? 
You remember John talking in Sunday school last week about the disciples just not quite getting it. And I think here's one of those examples. Well, I don't think they're quite wrapping their minds around the cosmic significance of what Jesus is saying about his second coming. But Jesus responds with a very cryptic answer, doesn't he? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What's that about? Well, you know, you know when you're driving down the road and you see those turkey vultures or black-headed vultures circling in the, in the air and, and little Johnny in the back seat asks, what are those big birds doing up there in the air? And, and, you, and you, you've got to tell them, well, there must, be a, there must be a body down there. I think it's really as, as simple as that. Where is this great separation going to take place, Jesus? Listen to Phil Riken, who I think explains this passage so well. He says, where people are spiritually dead is the place where the forces of judgment will gather, much the way vultures circle around a carcass. And so Jesus is simply saying the great separation will be manifested wherever there is spiritual death. And Jesus is giving us the sobering reminder that that separation could be in the middle of a family, in the middle of friends, in the middle of co-workers, in the middle of church members. And so my friends, as we reflect upon these words of Jesus, I, I, simply, I simply want to ask you do, you, do you see how serious Jesus is with his disciples? I've had, to, I've had to live with the weight of this text all week, and frankly, at times, it was too much to bear. And I was forced to ask myself the question, as a pastor, am I as serious as Jesus is serious? And I think I was convicted of the reality, at times, I need to be far more serious than I am. But are we as a congregation and are we as individuals prepared to be as serious as Jesus is prepared to be serious about us? You see, dear friends, we, we live in a world that is content to amuse and distract itself on its way to hell. And Jesus is speaking so seriously because because he, he knows these things and because he loves his disciples, because he cares for them, because he wants them to be prepared. So how do you prepare for that day? How do you prepare for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And of course, the answer of the gospel is simple and clear. By going to this same Jesus and trusting in him alone for salvation. But you see, I think, I think a lesson that we need to be reminded of and can certainly be pulled out of this passage is that we will never be serious about Jesus until we're as serious about our sin as Jesus is serious about sin. Put it another way, we, we will always take Jesus lightly so long as we take sin lightly. But Jesus doesn't take sin lightly. 
He takes it so seriously that he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to go there, suffer, and be rejected, and die for sinners. That's how seriously Jesus takes sin. So be be prepared. Be prepared for the day of his coming. I had the thought this week that, you know, in, in, in Johnstown, we, we get a lot of snowstorms. And you know, when we have the prediction that we're going to get walloped with 12 inches of snow, what do you do? You prepare, don't you? I, I hope you do. You make sure your snow shovel is accessible. You probably have someone run out to the grocery store to stock up on bread and milk. It's always bread and milk. I don't know why it's always bread and milk, but it's bread and milk. But you, but you know what's coming and you prepare. And yet Jesus tells us over and over and over again that he is the Lord of glory, the holy, sinless Son of God, coming again one day in judgment and salvation and we do nothing. Do you realize how silly that is? You realize how crazy that sounds when you reflect upon what Jesus is saying here. So I beg you, I beg you in Jesus' name to forsake levity and take your life as serious as Jesus takes your life. And if you put your trust in him, dear friends, the assurance of the gospel is that the day of his coming will be a day of joy and a day of salvation for you. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were so, you were so serious in your love for us that you went to the cross of Calvary and there were made to be sin and became a curse for us. Thank you for canceling the record of debt that stood against us so that we can be found in you and hidden in you and know that we are safe in you in the day of your return. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of our hearts to make us serious about sin and serious about the Savior not driven by some kind of servile fear, but driven by an understanding of what our sin deserves and the kind of gracious Savior that Jesus is. May we all be found in him today. I ask this for your name's sake, Lord. Amen.